going to be focusing on one of my favorite topics, which is the dwelling place of God. And I have to admit that I bit off more than I could chew because basically all of scripture is about God's dwelling place. And so um, this sermon is going to remind you of scriptures I perhaps don't mention. You're going to be like, oh, I really wish he had brought this passage or I wish he had mentioned that. And that's good. After service, go tell people about those passages and talk about the sermon and just delve more into this topic, but I'm really going to try to honor your time and keep everything within 30 minutes. So pray for me. All right. <laughs> now, you may have sometimes heard a child come up to you, someone in the family, and go, where does God live? And you're like, oh, well, God lives in heaven. And then the child is like, oh, yeah, but where's heaven? And you're like, well, that's a little bit trickier to, to answer because, well, it's definitely not something we can see. It's definitely not here, and we've got Isaiah 66, verse 1, which says, Heaven is God's throne, and the earth is his footstool. And where then is a house that we could build for him? And where is a place that he may rest? How, could he, how can he be seen? How can we actually encompass heaven? We can't. And then a very similar scripture in Isaiah 63, verse 15, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious lofty habitation. So we know that it's glorious, we know that as Psalm 104 says, he wraps himself in light. First uh, Timothy chapter 6 says that he is in inapproachable, unapproachable light. So when we're describing heaven to a child, we might be, well, heaven is glorious. It's filled with light, God's light of himself. But it's not here. It can't be contained. It can't be touched. We can't see it. It's kind of somewhere over there. Not here. <laughs> but we may kind of get into a place where we separate ourselves from God in that same mindset and go, well, but God is over there. He's not here. And today, I want us to move out of that kind of tendency that we all fall into from time to time as we go through our day to day and recognize that God's dwelling place has come to be with us. It starts at the very first chapter of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 through 3. We see the creation of the heavens and the earth, and we see God come into the garden and walk with man. Walking with man. Nothing inhibiting their relationship. No brokenness, no shame. They can see God. God is with them. And then we have the very last chapter of Scripture, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, which goes... I don't think I, thank you. <laughs> Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. It's this restoration of the garden, unbroken relationship, dwelling with God, him with us, us with him, belonging to each other, nothing inhibiting it. And then there's all the time in between. We missed out on the garden. We can't go back. But we don't exactly want to exactly die right now to get to heaven, do we? Most of us don't anyway. <laughs> and so what do we do with the in-between? Did God just say, I want to be with you and then leave and be like, just wait a little while, wait a little while, wait, and then I'll be with you again? Of course not. Scripture is full of imagery of God coming to dwell with us. 
We have the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that moves with Israel as they exit Egypt, as they exit slavery. God himself, in a visible pillar, leads them through the desert. And that pillar then descends on a tent that Moses pitches up because Moses is like, I need to ask God for instructions. And he goes to this tent to meet God and he calls it unoriginally the tent of meeting. And the pillar of fire and cloud descends on the tent of meeting whenever Moses goes into it. And the people outside of their own tents watch the pillar of cloud come and worship God because it's so awesome and it's so glorious. And that's not enough. It's not enough for just one man, Moses, to be experiencing the glory of God, just him and Moses. And so one day, Moses goes up the mountain to Sinai and That's when God's like, I want to establish a relationship with this people. Here are the statutes that they should follow to stay in relationship with me. And at that time, God says, um, let them construct a sanctuary for me. And this is Exodus 25, 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, that I can dwell amongst all of them. And it's this beautiful gift of God to make a way for his presence to be with his people. Now that way, a little bit messy, less than ideal, definitely something that would make us queasy because the whole building after being built and erected this glorious tent with elaborate decorations and gold and fine linens and huge lampstands made out of pure gold. It all has to be sanctified by the blood of sacrifices. And a priest goes around splashing blood on everything, on the altar, on on the garments that the priests wear, so that it can be a holy place because God is a holy God. And God can't dwell with his people unless it's holy. And that's difficult for us. We're like, but that seems like hassle. It's it's kind of at least in my opinion, kind of gross to kind of kill animals, to make that happen. But there's something mysterious about the fact that God is divine and uncreated and we are created. And those two things don't habitate together when the creation is broken and when the creation is damaged or sinful. And in the mystery of how it's all set up, that a sacrifice of blood cleanses. And so that's how it was. The temple had to be cleaned. The people who were ministering before God had to be cleaned. But at the same time, God was still able to dwell with his people. And it was a wonderful thing. And eventually, Israel goes into the promised land. And so they're actually able to start settling and building cities. King David comes along and conquers the surrounding nations, builds peace on every side, and goes, now, God, we can build a temple for your habitation, not just a mere tabernacle, not just a tent, but a glorious temple where your name will be glorified, where your name will be honored. And God's like, well, that's a great idea, but not you, your son will do that. And so Solomon raises up a temple and then he makes the most, well, remarkable statement. We're gonna skip a slide and go to 1 Kings 8, 27, 30. He creates this glorious temple. It takes more than 100,000 workers to build. And he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much this house which I have built. Nevertheless, turn your attention to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, Lord, my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant will pray toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, in your dwelling place, here, and forgive. It's so striking to me that after three years of work and more than 100,000 laborers to construct this elaborate temple, this beautiful, glorious place that was filled with wealth, that Solomon then turns around and goes, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? We're like, whoa, are you not happy with how it turned out, King Solomon? But there is the reality that because God is God of the universe, because he is uncreated, he cannot just dwell in a mere building, and yet he provides a temporary space to meet with people. And that's how dwelling with Israel was set up for the Old Testament. And as you can guess, when you put God into a box, so to speak, a house, and you're not walking with him in your day-to-day -day life, when he's God on Sunday, but he's not God on the rest of the days, he's only dwelling with you when you're in church, you can imagine that the heart begins to stray. And Israel struggled with this without, throughout their relationship with God, not being able to incorporate God into their daily lives, always, falling in love with someone else except God. Why? Because all they had were statutes, rules to follow, and a temple where God would dwell. Not to minimize the greatness or the gloriousness of that provision, but it still was so, so short of what God intends for us. The temple eventually gets destroyed, it gets rebuilt, it gets destroyed, it gets rebuilt. <laughs> anyway, and then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus himself comes, fully God, fully man. Just, just so beautiful to think about, but also just so hard to understand for us. And yet Jesus says to those listening to him, something greater than the temple is here. Meaning that the manifest glory, the cloud of fire, the cloud that led them by day, that pillar that would descend on the tent of meeting with Moses, the cloud of glory in Exodus 40 that filled the temple so heavy and thick that the priests couldn't stand to minister, the cloud of glory that filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it in the same way, so thick and so heavy throughout the temple, the priests could not stand to minister. That manifest glory of God was in Jesus. Something greater than the temple was here. A man who had come to build a relationship with the people that he loved. A man who came not only to be the temple, but also to be the sacrifice, and also to be the priest that ministered the sacrifice to the people. To be the fullness of what we needed to be holy. No longer needing to sacrifice bulls and calves and, and goats and sheep. And so that's all good, 
That's why we're Christians, because Jesus did that. Jesus came, he died on a cross, he resurrected. His blood pays away to set us free from our sin. Hallelujah, that's so good. And sometimes we stop there. Jesus came, he was the perfect temple. He was the perfect representation of God's name. He was the perfect representation of God's character. And we leave it there. But the most incredible thing that's all throughout the New Testament is then God goes, now you are my dwelling place. And I just, I can't get over this. I like, I prepped the sermon. I read all the passages related to this. They're everywhere. You can look at 2 Corinthians. You can look at Ephesians. You can read in 1 Corinthians about this. That 2 Peter is about this. And the biblical writers are all going, you are the dwelling place of God. You are being built into a temple for his holy habitation. You are his body. And I could just, it flabbergasts me because the God who fills all the heavens and the earth, who's outside of creation, wants to fill you and me to the fullness of our capacity to carry him. And so the question becomes, God, how do I increase my capacity to carry you? And the answer is holiness. And I want to clarify, and I'm going a little bit off script, and I somewhat anticipated this today, but I just, I want to clarify what holiness is. Because we can get caught up on the idea that I'm not holy or I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough to be considered holy. But that is just so not the case. Holiness, we talked about this in the last sermon, I appreciate if you remember that a little while ago. <laughs> Holiness is separateness. It means that there's that it's its own thing, that it cannot be compared to anything else because it's so great and it's so wonderful. Hold, that's for God, God's holiness. Perfection in character, perfection in morality, perfection, eternal divinity. When people are called to be holy, we automatically are not in the same category as God. We are not divine, we are not eternal. We do not have perfect moral character unfortunately, but we can be separate unto God. So holiness is this choice we make to say, God, I'm putting you first and I'm allowing you to shape my ways unto you and out of the world, out of my past, out of my sin. It's not a works-based relationship. It's not righteousness made by me because Christ is my righteousness. Christ did everything perfectly, fulfilled the law perfectly so that when I see God on judgment day, my name comes up, Jesus' test score comes in. A plus. 
And that's for each of us. God sees each of us through his son. So there's no earning our place with God. There's no earning God's dwelling with me. I can't become so good and do so well and perform so that God spends more time with me or that God dwells more richly in me. But I can make a choice of devotion to say, God, I love you. I choose you. And it's the choice of love that causes God to dwell in us. It's the choice of love saying, I put you first before anything else that causes that continual dwelling with God where we, we learn him, we know about him, we get to spend time with him, we read his word, we pray. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, one of the passages that talks about us being the dwelling place of God. It says, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by people, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Please note the words are being built up. There is no perfection or completion in this life of your holiness or God's dwelling place because, one, we are human and we fall, but God forgives us, praise the Lord. Two, we as an individual are not the fullness of God's dwelling place. If Emily Tregellis was the fullness of God's dwelling place, we'd have a big problem because Emily Tregellis lacks several character traits of God, such as compassion and patience, and has to constantly be reminded by the Holy Spirit to practice such things. But if we were my twin sister, Cecilia Tregellis, she cannot be the full dwelling place of God either because she is overly compassionate to the point where she tires herself out. I love my sister. But we each have different facets that exemplify his character. We each have different gifts that minister to the body. And in that, we are the dwelling place of God. When we receive his love and exercise his love, we become the picture of what God's temple looks like, of what his fullness looks like. Ephesians I love Ephesians. I wish we could read the whole thing, but we're not going to. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19 goes, uh, the, the writer is praying that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner self so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. And this is the plural you, that we would be filled to all the fullness of God in, in, in love. That's, that's the mechanism. It's not by trying harder. It's not by trying to earn God's favor. It is by love, by knowing that he has loved me Every time I fall, he still loves me. And by extending that same love and mercy to those around me. And this is 
incredible. Ephesians goes on to talk about the ways we can love one another, how we can honor our husbands, how slaves, well, at that time, how slaves could honor their masters, and how we could show deference, and humility is one of the key words of that, submission to one another. And so one of the reasons I bring, this to, uh, bring us to this point is because the Western church sometimes overemphasizes the individual kind of relationship with God. But God didn't set us up to be individuals with him. He set us up to be a family with him. And as we talk about the Holy Spirit in the sermon series that Jamie is giving us, which this is not exactly part of, but kind of related, <laughs> we want to be aware that as we are the dwelling place of God's Spirit, that we can steward that best by loving one another. We can steward that best by showing deference and humility to one another, forgiving one another if they've offended us. And what happens when we become God's dwelling place are two really important things. One, God interacts with me and transforms my heart. Two, I interact with others and God interacts with them, as I do. As I show love, as God's spirit guides me, other people get a taste of who God is. So two important things, God transforms my heart. I'm tasting of the goodness of God and being transformed. And other people start to be transformed because my love for God and God's love in me is flowing outward. And so we have the fullness and the fulfillment of what the temple in the Old Testament was originally supposed to be, which was a testimony to God's presence and what God looked like as well as the meeting place with his people. And so we have a huge responsibility on our shoulders. I think about that and I go, God, every time I interact with someone, they're interacting with your body. And Jesus says as much. He says, whenever you feed or clothe one of your brethren, whenever you give them water, you have done that to me. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Quite shockingly, he says, if you bring a prostitute into your bed, you make Christ sleep with her. And so it's, take, it's a very, very serious um, thing that we carry the image of God and that we are the dwelling place of God because it's not, it's not made up. It's not far off. It's actually with us, in us. So how do we bear that responsibility without feeling burnt out or feeling like we're in works all the time, trying to please God? We learn to love God more than anything else. We learn to love God more than anything else. And those can come in several ways gratitude for what he's done, gratitude for his mercy, reflecting on all the ways that he has brought us closer to him in the past, how he's working in our lives right now. It comes by being sanctified in his word so that we read the word and let it transform us. It comes through prayer and especially praying in line with God's prayers for us. 
So in John 17, Jesus prays that we will be with him where he is. That's where we started the sermon. So we pray, Jesus, fulfill your prayer for me, that I would be with you where you are, that I would know you. The Holy Spirit prays with us with groanings too deep for words. So we'd say, Holy Spirit, pray for me that I would know Jesus, that I would be made his dwelling place into the fullness of him. We also read in Hebrews that Jesus is interceding for us to overcome the world, right? There's so, I mean, there's so many scriptures about this. But pray, pray the prayers that God is praying for you and ask God to dwell in you richly, to fulfill Ephesians chapter 2. And when you're doing those things, if you're choosing to love God by reading his word, being in prayer, loving your neighbor, you'll find that you get to experience the love of God more and more in your life and that you'll know him more intimately in your life without, without really trying. Like, if I could describe my walk with God over the past 20 years, it was lots of works and performance up until a certain point, and then falling in love with God, and I never thought about works again. Just, just loving him. And I'm still growing, and I'm still changing, but I'm not making an effort to do so. And it's just this, it's the beauty of what happens when God's spirit is put into this temple. And so, I'm just going to check our time here. We're doing good. There's so much more that I could say about this, and indeed, I had a lot more notes. And I feel like we rushed through it a little bit because I've done so much reading on it. But if I can just put one thing into our hearts is that Jesus himself in John 17 prayed that you would have eternal life, but he defined it and said, eternal life is that you would know God in Jesus Christ. And he also prayed that you would be with him where he is and see his glory. And we have the honor of being with God because we are his temple and that he's willing as much as we ask to fill us with the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of his love that surpasses knowledge. That, that phrase that surpasses knowledge means that it's an experiential knowledge, that it's not just something that's in theory, but something that we begin to live out and exercise in our day-to-day. -day. And that as we continue to get to know the Holy Spirit, it just continues to get better and better. It's no longer about striving or what I can do or what righteousness necessarily I can keep tabs on or check off, but simply, how can I put God first? How can I put God first today, on Monday, on Thursday, not necessarily on Sunday, even if I can't come to church on Sunday and that's okay. How can I put God first? And that is, that is a lifestyle of holiness that begins to transform us into the dwelling place of God. And so I'm going to invite the um, praise team to come back up. And we're going to have some songs of praise to sing, but also I just want this to be a time for you to dialogue with God. Pray the prayers that he's praying for you that say, God, make me the fullness of your dwelling place so that I may know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of your love. And to 
ask God, is there anything in my life that is not in alignment with you? Is there anything that I give my love to more than you that's keeping me from being the fullness of your dwelling place? That's keeping me from knowing the fullness of your joy, knowing the fullness of your peace, being love to my neighbor. Is there anything that I can set aside so that I can be set apart? So as we take that time of, um, of working with the Lord, um, open your Bibles, go to Scripture, go wherever it leads you, and just allow, allow that to be your meditation for this time. And then we'll offer God an offering of praise because he's worthy always. And then we'll close the service.